How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 185. I did a Skype interview with Dr. Cami Fletcher. She's a death scholar and historian and president of the Collective for Radical Death Studies. She teaches history at Albright College. Her specialty is African-American deathways and death work. She's the author of a book, Real Business, Maryland's First Black Cemetery Journeys into the Enterprise of Death. And she has a book coming up April uh, 2020 that she's a co-editor on. It's Till Death Do Us Part, American Ethnic Cemeteries as Borders Uncrossed. So she and I talked about all sorts of things, uh, history, death, the African-American experience, uh, Jim Crow, uh, slavery, uh, undertakers, all sorts of things. So great. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. She has some wonderful uh, suggested reading and a documentary that she also suggested. I'm going to put all that stuff on the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com and definitely pre-order her book. Yeah, so usual stuff, Hey Human Podcasts on Instagram uh, and Facebook. And I personally can be found Susan Ruthism, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, you can check out my other life, my painting and music and stuff at SusanRuth.com. Uh, I am no longer part of the Amazon portal. I'm apparently in Amazon portal jail, the affiliates program jail. Um, trying to work that out. I did links wrong or something. I don't know. Something happened and they are very specific about their requirements. So if you wish to support Hey Human, please do so by using the donate button on the heyhumanpodcast.com website on the main page. Uh, donations are always greatly appreciated. They help support the show and keep it running and so there's that. Um, you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Uh, always please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, and that's, I think, pretty much that. Uh, thank you for listening. This comes out on Thanksgiving in America. Uh, so I wish big tidings and blessings to all of you. Um, for those of you who are not with family, or friends uh, for Thanksgiving. Maybe you're working or maybe uh, you are alone. You're not alone. Just want to say that if you can hear my voice, I'm thinking of you. And uh, I love you and I want all the best things for you. So let's move into the new year with love in our hearts. And here is to even better times ahead. Thanks, everybody. Here we go. Dr. Cammie Fletcher, welcome to Hey Human. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm very excited to talk with you because uh, your work is in something that I am fascinated with and have been fascinated with for a long time. So you're a death scholar and a historian, and you're part of the Order of the Good Death. Is that correct? Well, we are partners with them. Okay. So the Collective for Radical Death Studies um, officially launched in September of this year, of 2019, um, and so grateful to have partners ready. So the Order of Good Death is one of our official partners. Um, you can see all of this on our website, uh, Comfort Homesake, um, Mari Nurtures, um, and there's a, a wonderful death center out of the University of York um, in Bath. Um, 
that's doing some phenomenal work um, is also part of our partners. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. Where were you raised up? Oh, from Arkansas, um, a town that has a wonderful historically black college that I attended and graduated from. Um, so yeah, Pine Bluff, Arkansas is where I'm from. And what began your interest in death? Oh, long after that. So um, I moved to Baltimore 2009, my family and I, to pursue my PhD in history. Um, and I was coming off of a women's studies degree. So I wanted to continue my path of learning about black women. And I decided that I wanted to be a historian because the women that I were, was reading, Darlene Clark Hine, Deborah Gray White, you know, these were women that had uh, saw um, education and academia um, is activism and I wanted to be a scholar activist just like them so I uh, attended Morgan State and um, my advisor Dr. Deborah Newmanham was part of the restoration and preservation efforts of Mount Auburn Cemetery um, here in Baltimore um, the oldest black autonomous black cemetery in baltimore um and i still think with my research and we may talk about that later in maryland um and they wanted they were she was part of these efforts and they wanted a graduate student um to do this probably because we're cheaper um <laughs> or want the experience right yeah and um you know she brought it to me and i was like yeah you know i'm a historian i want to do this but i was hesitant because it was like um you know, this is death. I'm from the South and you don't play with death. You know, I grew up here with my mom having stories of her um, aunts and uncles coming back. You know, this is how we talk in the black community. Someone came back to you and you're not dreaming. You're sitting here just like me and you and you see this person. They're coming back to warn you of something or to tell you about something um, that's good. That's going to happen. And I was like a cemetery. Um but of, of course my academic curiosity and it was paying, you know, I said that like three times. Um, and I got involved and immediately I was like, Oh my God, this is such rich African-American history. Exactly what I'm trying to do as a historian. These are untouched, untapped, um, sources. And so from there, literally I've been studying this since maybe 2010 was Mount Auburn one of the first or the first black cemetery? So in Baltimore, absolutely, because it was founded in 1807. And when I say um, that, I mean so, owned, owned by black people, not owned by the right, plantation or, yeah. Right, right. And I make that point, too, to say autonomous. You know, it was an autonomous um, black cemetery. Um, these church that owns it, Sharp Street, um, Methodist Church. It wasn't AME or AME Zion. This was um, organically attached to the Methodist Church. Okay, so Sharp Street Church is the oldest black Methodist Church, African Methodist Church in Baltimore. And there's even some discrepancy because its roots um, with the racism that came with a lot of Southerners joining Methodism um, came, yeah, like I said, came the racism. Um, blacks um, in escaping this racism and resisting it, you know, they left with their feet. They, you know, they used their feet. They left, um, and, um, they went to meeting in people's basements and people's homes. And this was 1787. 
So there's some discrepancy to say, is the mother Bethel in Philadelphia? Is it the oldest or is Sharp Street the oldest? So it has older roots. Um, and these were Africans that petitioned to Straw Bridge, or is it Strawberry, Asbury, uh, for their independence in their own church. So we're talking early, early on, um, but at the same time, these black folks wanted a cemetery as well. And so that just shows you the importance of burial and what was going on with black people being denied burial in, in Potter's Field and um, being their um, only option, you know, in air quotes. Um, so absolutely, this was supposed to be black owned and this was always black owned and for black folks. So during the time of slavery, was uh, were blacks allowed to practice their death rituals the way maybe a modern era person is, or or was that also something that was you know suppressed by the yeah. white plantation owners and such and the communities at large? Because I imagine, and we'll get into that because obviously this is what you do that um, from such a a rich, steeped history of where people came from when they were taken and brought here, that in order to to maintain a sense of who one is, right, you bring your tribe with you, it it lives within you, inside your heart, even if the things around you don't want you to experience it that. So how did they maintain that? Yeah, yeah. No, that and that's always the thing, right? Africanisms, you know, this idea that it rejects the notion that during enslavement, specifically during the transatlantic slave trade and the Middle Passage, that um, black people, that Africans lost their heritage, lost their history, lost who they were. Because during that Middle Passage process, um, you know, scholars have talked about it's not just folks getting on a boat and crossing the Atlantic, but it was a year long process of being trekked to the ocean, staying in these dungeons for months until they filled up. The Europeans got enough, in air quotes, um, that they need for their greed and going to the Caribbean. Um, That's a year long process. So scholars have said that, you know, this was the idea of making a slave. You know, they didn't go over there and get slaves. You know, everyone wasn't a prisoner of war. This was actually making a slave. You are um, branding someone. You are repeatedly raping someone. You are repeatedly beating someone, right? You know, how is someone's language supposed to survive? You know, but this is all they had, right? This is this is what they have. And so these Africanisms show up in food, show up in language. Um, If you know anything about the Gullah people or the Geechee people in North Carolina, um, you know, where there was um, this big slave port where you have the basket weaving, you know, that was something that survived. And uh, like you're asking, it showed up in their their death ways, right? So um, scholar uh, Rodiger, I'm, I'm blanking out on his first name, but he has this great article uh, to Diane Dixie. And his point is slaveholders are constantly writing about black people in their funerals. 
um, slaveholders are leading these funerals, which is um, disturbing to say the least. Um, sometimes they're actually, um, and in leading these funerals, giving time off for a funeral, um, they're actually providing materials to make the coffin um, or, you know, allowing the carpenter on site because these plantations are um, isolated, isolated in the county and in Maryland, the Chesapeake Bay splits the state. So, you know, on the eastern shore it's where the counties um, are vast land space, not like the cities where the plantations wouldn't flourish. And so he's asking this question in his research, like, you know, so these planters are constantly writing about these funerals, writing about, um, you know, what's going on um, with death. There uh, also these planters, these slaveholders are making laws about black people gathering for funerals, not wanting them to gather. You know, New York, Virginia, early on, 1700s, these laws are happening. What's going on? His conclusion, which, you know, is, is the thing to agree with, is that black people are using death to resist. So if White folks are constantly writing about it, um, finding ways to get involved, finding ways to oversee and control this, and black people are resisting. They're not saying, oh, well, we're going to acquiesce to what these whites want us to do in death. We're just going to, you know, not do our practices. We're not going to properly bury, bury someone. They're resisting. They're, they're doing this. Um, the other piece of that um, in this resistance is the second burials. So if someone is dropping dead from heat exhaustion, yellow fever, um, these diseases that's happening, um, and the slaveholder is not allowing time off or someone you know dies and you're not allowed to properly grieve like we think now under the dark of night um black folks would come you know in an isolated part of the plantation um that scholars call these slave landscapes where nothing is growing so you don't have there's no field there's no tobacco or any kind of indigo or cotton or whatever grown there this is a space that enslaved folks have claimed as their own um, and under, you know, the cover of night, they are not only burying someone that maybe died that day, but they are memorializing so their ceremonies. Um, I think William Steele, conductor, famous conductor on the Underground Railroad, in his book, his work talks about this, and, you know, other, other scholars talk about this. So um, slave burials are hard to even find now. Um because they were meant to be anonymous, meant to be hidden, you know, this hidden uh, hidden history. Lynn Rainville talks about this in, in her work. But to your point, it happened. And we know it happened looking at, um, you know, these white planters and slaveholders um, in their works because they were controlling the narrative so much so that they were writing about it. Yeah. I think something you just said, to me at least, is so poetic, death as resistance. If I think about, especially as it's depicted in the media, maybe that that sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a celebratory function and a mm. death function in the black culture yeah. of what's been portrayed in the media, at least for me. Um, and that idea that under this sort of cover that you actually get to scream the loudest 
whether it's in joy or in sorrow, I, I just I love that, mm. that, that image to me is so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing about like death. When you look at death in the black community is completely shrouded with racism, oppression, systematic violence, lynching, um, you know, white violence, the idea that in slavery, you own somebody's body. So you're allowed to decide when they live and die. You know, you have to um, understand all of that. And this is where the collective for radical death studies is about putting Uh, marginalized communities, putting people of color and their death, dying, grieving, um, disposal of the body, whether it's cremation or, you know, burial, in the center of that. So you take all of that and you understand that um, in your question of, is this celebrating, is this mourning, it's all of it. I'm sure you saw, um, let's go back a couple of years now, I think it's actually been a year, no, maybe two, Aretha Franklin when she passed away. And this is where black mourning culture is put on display. Carla Holloway and her amazing work um, passed on. And at CRDS, uh, the Radical Death Studies, we just, we have a Rad Death Reads where we identify a read and we go on Twitter and we interact with it. You know, we just, it's like a book club, it is, but it's not just for books. Um, you know, in her book, she talks about this. You know, that in that morning, in that home going, it's absolutely a celebration. We are celebrating this person's life, their accomplishments. You know, to white society, she may have only been a singer. Or this person may be a thug, in quotes, you know, a criminal, in quotes. No, this was my brother. This was my father. This was a complicated, three-dimensional person that deserves to be a person. And in that home going, you know, in the shouting and the singing is a way to heal, is absolutely a way to mourn, you know. And black folks need six hours, you know, we need six hours for our homegoing ceremony is what I'm saying. It's not a quick 30 minute, you know, one hour. We need all of that, um, you know, to we need that space um, to get all of that out. So it is it's it's celebration of life. And I think that may be the confusion. Um, nobody's celebrating a death. We're celebrating a life. And we're trying to heal and call attention mm-hmm. to this death that we think shouldn't have happened, which is, you know, almost a lead into my research on RIP T-shirts that people don't. I, I don't think people really understand what's, what's going on with those. And I myself admittedly um, really didn't. Let's talk so about it. Research Let's thing. talk about that a bit. Yeah, so the RIP t-shirts, and there's multiple names for them now, uh, Celebration of Life Tees, Morning Tees, but commonly called RIP t-shirts, you know, rest in peace. Um, So you may see celebrities walking around. I think I saw, um, who did I just see with a jacket? My goodness, I was on Instagram and I just saw someone with a jacket. Uh, I think it was uh, Puff Daddy, Diddy, his, um, the love of his life, if you go on his his Instagram, Mm -hmm. you know, the mother of his children, Mm -hmm. Kim Porter passed away a year ago. That's what it was, a year anniversary of her passing, denim jacket airbrushed um, with her, I think, 
him on the back or maybe it was two pictures of her on the back of his jacket um so i think white society doesn't understand and doesn't know what they're looking at and that happens with a lot of what black culture is if it's our hair our, our dress our food um and when my nephew was tragically murdered two years ago now literally two years ago in november i had i was thrust in that morning circle and because he was only 28 and the RIP t-shirts definitely has roots in the youth. Um, I don't understand why my nephew's 28 and he's not here. Um, and so with that happening, he started to do the RIP t-shirts and I decided to be a mourner and a death scholar all in once, all in one to help my own grieving and my own coping. And I think the, the big takeaways from that is it's activism. Once again, um, these are mo- historically has been black young males that have been, um, that have died due to street crime, um, police brutality, and how the narrative gets shaped is that this black person was involved in street crime. Okay, if they were, so what? We have to look at a system that oppresses black youth due to the education system that's failing them, um, due to the housing system that has ignored their parents and their and their whole community and their situation, that a life of crime, selling drugs, has been the only option that's been allotted to them. Right. Um, and, you know, it's also been combined with police brutality. So that shirt is saying, we know what has happened to our uh, loved one. He is loved. You know, he or she, but traditionally has been is male dominated. Um, but this person is loved, is missed, and we are telling you through our shirt how this person died. If it's if it's police brutality, um, and that we're wearing their likeness as a memorial. Many times, unlike the white community, and I this in my Jim Crow research, where whites will just build a monument to whatever Southern confederate general um for for them not to be forgotten um you know that type of capital is lost on this particular population that i'm talking about of black folks and so it becomes a walking memorial i am memorializing this person you know similar to the way that um you know, class and um, racialized whites are allowed to build monuments to name schools after, you know, get scholarships in the name of, of these people. So there's a lot going on with memory um, and ritual with, um, with, with RIP t-shirts. How did your own nephew's death uh, weave its way into your understanding of death before and then after? By the way, I'm sorry for your loss. That's so young. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I mean, it was directly with the T-shirts, honestly, you know, because of his age, his mother decided to do that. Now, my brother recently passed away tragically, October 9th, um, and we did not do T-shirts. He was 55. So... Um, with my nephew and doing these t-shirts, I wanted to know why are we doing this? Where does this ritual come from? Does it have roots in the broader mourning, um, mourning ritual 
that we do with homegoing, that we do with the repass, you know, these morning things um, that black folks do, you know, what what's going on in that. So, you know, I used, again, you know, myself as a mourner um, looking around at us doing it um, and then, you know, again, looking at other um, research and how clothing you know, is used the act of wearing, you know, what does that mean? I found myself looking at 19th century Victorian morning rituals of wearing the hair. Um, so I just got into this idea of like cloth um, and, 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 we, and I'm still looking into it. You know, I'm still, I'm still, still doing this, but, um, you know, definitely being a, a memorial um, was something that just, seems to pop out um, in the research and definitely people being young. Mm-hmm. Recently, where was this? There was a shooting in, it's so funny now, it's ridiculous. Uh, was it Dallas? Was it San Antonio? Maybe last year there was a shooting somewhere in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so yeah. you know what I'm talking yeah, about. This is ridiculous. That is so many. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree. It's so hard to keep track anymore. There's just so many. It's you know, and and what they did with the T-shirts, and I'm I'm putting in this into my own research was along the fence of like the football field, um, and there's a wonderful newspaper article on it, and this one may have been him in Maryland because I think it's traveling. This this um, and again, it's this idea of the memorial. You take it down, put it up. It's traveling, um, but the point is, they put these T-shirts and they just white T-shirts, and they just put the age of the person on it. Um, and there were hundreds, maybe two hundred of these T-shirts um, along the gate to symbolize the absence. These are teenagers. These are supposed to be kids that are at the school. But they put them along, you know, the gate of the school. Um, and when you're talking about children and you're talking about young people in that way, it's sobering, you know, and it should make America take notice of how these people are dying, you know, gun violence. Um, and then what's going on, you know, in the black community, you know, this systematic violence that that's going on. So that's why that memorial um, and it's not a celebration. Black people are not just walking around with these T-shirts because we're celebrating our loved ones are gone. It's to symbolize that these kids are no longer here, you know, this absence. And I think, you know, showing, um, you know, America that children are dying from gun violence or, you know, systematic racism, oppression, you know, and, and that's the memorial um, that I was talking about because it's traveling. I know it is because it was to talk about the shooting that happened in Texas, but some students had gotten together um, and were active and mobilized to do it in Maryland, you know, to bring attention to this very issue. Um, And there's nothing like, you know, having a t-shirt because everybody wears a t-shirt, but kids, you know, kids don't normally wear suits and formal wear. So, you know, just looking at the use the use of it is is so important. I think it it, yeah. it makes me think of um, in the Jewish culture when someone dies and they tear their clothing. That there's a history of little signs and symbols on the clothing in different, especially in oppressed groups and pro- oppressed mm-hmm. minorities to that have that have to have their own code in order yeah. to speak with each other. And I I think a lot about the shouting as well um, that you mentioned, and I think part of it. 
almost as if to say, can you hear me? You know, trying to get through the veil from the living to the dead. And so wailing and and shouting and the the demonstration is almost in a way to, to, to bust through that, that barrier between life and death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, for the black community, like, um, again, if you're thinking about the African experience in America, it has been about exploiting black folks labor, you know, completely dehumanizing them. So this idea that black people don't feel because we're not humans, um, we are not experiencing mourning in the ways that white people are, you know, there's a lot of research on that, um, about how black women, you know, doctors were experimenting on black women um, during slavery. You know, they thought that black women were just, um, they could just shoot out babies, you know, like uh, cattle would. So, you know, you take that and you fast forward to today or, you know, 20th, uh, even the 20th century. And it's this idea that black people are just, you don't have the same care and you don't have the same concern. And that's even overlaid with the pathology. This death that has happened in the black community, they brought it on themselves. The crime, the um, inadequate housing, the lack of jobs, um, the uneducated, you know, this is a pathology. This is something that they brought onto themselves. So when black people are dying in these ways, specifically with uh, police are just killing black people. I mean, that's what it is. Nobody has a gun. This man is sitting in his house. Uh, Stephon Clark was in the backyard of, at his grandmother's. Um, and, and there's so many names. The, the last gentleman was in his house in Texas. Um, you know, the white female cop just shot him in his home. And it's not that type of outcry. Nobody's, oh my God, I cannot believe that this happened. You know, I think when so she was found guilty, I think, and thank yeah. God she was found guilty, as she should have been. Um, that, that was the, the, the whole mess of all of it. And I think what is the most cringeworthy thing I hear, especially because, you know, I lived in the South for 13 years. And one of the more cringeworthy, most cringeworthy things I heard was, well, it's been, you know, X amount of years. Why don't, why doesn't everybody just get over it? And I, I think, firstly, though, it should be an only in front of that word of how many years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, and yeah. in fact, it's not like it's stopped. It's just changed what it looks like. It's been recalibrated into a normalcy. And that's perhaps even more horrendous. I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard to... Not more horrendous than slavery, don't get me wrong. What I mean is that normalcy of, oh, well, that just happens. Or like you said, oh, they brought it on themselves. Or I think when yeah. that language starts, yeah. it's such a dangerous, language is dangerous. And how right. it's, it's how it's facilitating. We see that all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, we're in the legacy of slavery. Um, you know, we still have the same norms, behaviors. They've, um, you know, as you say, adjusted to the the, the resistance um, that destroyed slavery, the resistance that destroyed Jim Crow. Um, you know, Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, she talks about this mass incarceration as the new Jim Crow. Um, you know, and then the, the police violence, if you see this violence if that's resulting in black death and there's no outcry, um, then that's what I'm saying with going back to your point about the welling in the morning. 
I am here. Hear me. I am mourning. Someone died that meant a lot to me. But if white society only sees the stereotype of the brute, the hooded black male that I'm so fearful of, that's the only person I'm fearing, you know, not these white males that are shooting up schools. I'm just fearful of this black male in a hoodie. I'm fearful of this black woman. I'm fearful of these kids. These are stereotypes. Brute, Jezebel, Sapphire, Piccaninny, then our mourning takes a different shape. You know, in that we are trying to say that we are hurting, we are trying to heal collectively, because that's the only way that we're going to heal. There's no outside support coming. We can't expect for, um, you know, white society to validate our morning rituals or to, um, you know, give us any any type of support. It's just looked at as the other. It's it's different. And so in that has been a shaping of what black morning looks like. Do you feel that for me when I just hearing things we just talked about the idea of it's almost you know the leaning in the embracing of a death and 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 shouting about it and saying this person existed this is a human being yeah um versus I think in white culture and European culture death is is to be feared there is this huge movement uh, to you know, fight death every step of the way, whether it's by physically altering one's body or you know the the workout culture or the vitamin culture or the f- all the food diets or you know, whatever it is. There's this immense fear of death in the Eurocentric culture versus your you know your culture, the culture of the black human. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what I found myself in, you know, as we started off this conversation, it was like, you know, you're a death scholar, you're a historian, you know, I just saw myself as a historian of African American history, and I am, you know, continuing to understand the African experience in America, um, you know, write about this, um, and writing about cemeteries, writing about this church, writing about burial was in line with that. It was only until I began to understand this broader conversation that was happening in death studies and I came to claim myself as a death scholar that I said death denial a good death these are the prevailing notions in death studies and I thought death denial death disappearance when you hear scholars talking about this the books and the things exactly what you're saying um, interdisciplinary I thought what is going on here you know you can't deny something that is so very much a part of your life that your very existence you cannot deny that and I understand the literature is this idea of hospice care and death going into the hospitals that it's no longer in the home people don't necessarily die in the home and then the family you know cares for the body and the uh, person is buried in the backyard you know that's been pushed out of the home but I think when you look at again the ways that people of color are dying the rituals reflect that Um, I was on Twitter when um, the young seven-year-old girl at the border died And it was discussion about um, ICE agents kicking over. There was a picture kicking over the water that this nonprofit organization had left, you know, at the border um, for people that are coming, you know, these families that are coming. 
and um, the ritual, the death ritual that spawned out of this. This this young girl um, from somewhere, I'm not sure if she was Mexico or um, you know somewhere even further. And I went to Twitter and I said, this is what radical death studies is about. These folks are mourning. And the ritual that they're doing now, whatever that is, because it was an article that I was attaching to that tweet, is about them dealing with this seven-year-old girl's death and the colonialism, the xenophobia, the racism that resulted in that girl dying. So it's not about, oh, you know, I am... Um, you know, fighting back against this institution that's saying I have to do hospice care. And that's the whole thing about death denial. No. You know, this is about people trying to deal with the little girl that should be here right now. So, again, you know, with the Collective for Radical Death Studies, um, our questions are not about death directives. You know, it's not about people need to have wills and people need to, you know, control their death. It is about black people don't want to die, we want to live. And we want to call attention to the senseless ways in which we're dying and look and have validity to our rituals. If somebody's walking around with an RIP t-shirt at Walmart, which is very common where I'm from in Pine Bluff, um, and I'm sure, um, you know, places here where I live now in Maryland, it's not about, oh, what, what is that about? It's respecting their ritual. So to me, it's, it's a gamut and you have to understand um, and respect. Mm. Will you talk a little bit more about uh, the death ritual within uh, the community of the black person, just besides the shirt, but just even a beloved dies, regardless of what their life was, as you spoke to it, because who we are in life isn't who we are in death. Death is yeah. the, the great equalizer. If, you know, you go to a cemetery and everyone is in the ground, you know, I went and uh, I went into a... A forensic lab and you know you see all these bones of people you don't know what color they are you don't know what religion they are you don't know what sexual orientation you don't know it's this great equalizer yeah. and perhaps that's one of the reasons people fear death is because suddenly they're not special yeah. anymore you know <laughs> you know what i mean yeah <laughs> maybe I, I, that's I, I, part I, I, of it the psychology i don't know but what is some of the rituals yeah, you know, um, Susan, I have to say this. In my work, I have really taken on that idea that death is the great equalizer. I don't believe that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, my recent project on Jim Crowing the Dead, the links that Southern whites are going to to separate and justify the separation of burial and death is just insane, absurd, and it's all laid out in the newspaper, in the newspaper articles. So, um, you know, you also have slaveholders. Um, You know, in in my book that's out in April, uh, To Death Do Us Part, one of the contributors talks about slaveholders maintaining their image in death via the cemetery, via the epitaph, via how big the monuments are. So, I mean, you know, I kind of push back against that. Let's have a conversation about that. You know, of course, the segregation, um, the, the even though we're all in the ground, even the money, the class with the monuments, what part of the section you're in, are you closer to the church or are you closer to the water? You know, all of this stuff. So but For me, that's all the living yeah. doing that. 
the, that, that's the thing. It's like, yes, a complete 1000% agree yeah. with you that that is still yeah. the living. What I'm talking about is when I was in a room with yeah. dozens and dozens and dozens of human bones and looking at them all in that moment, you know, we are all human. It's the living that then continues the, the bullshit. You know, yeah. the living continues all that stuff. Seriously, I mean, for a great example, um, yeah. when you, you brought up the the officer, uh, sh- former officer killing, uh, I can't think of his name. Again, there's so yeah. many names now. They, they all tumble in my brain, but um, which is disrespectful, I know, but I just I can't remember his name. And the the witness in the, one of the witnesses was murdered and yeah, what I f- and it, it, what i found so fascinating and to your point mm. is that instead of saying oh my god this witness was murdered they suddenly have to put together this story of how they somehow deserved it because they're like oh well they found they drugs i was like i don't know throw a rock at a white person and you find somebody taking drugs and you know what mm, i mean it's mm, that's absolutely. not an, it's not an argument yeah it's no, not no, an no, argument no, that yeah. says they deserve to be executed for damn sure so i do think that yes the living continue the bullshit but the dead are like what the fuck <laughs> you know yeah yeah. Yeah. No. And, 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 and so that's the thing, right? These communities that the living and the dead create, like who gives it the power, you know, who gives it the understanding of it? Um, right. You know, the dead are somewhere we cannot see them or some people that, you know, the spiritualists of the 19th century are, co- are convening with them, you know, giving them that that. Uh, social racial category um, I'm with you laying it out that way maybe that's how we solve racism we lay out a bunch of bones and, and tell people um, you know everybody's equal if only we could solve yeah. it I wish that though as long as a human being walks the earth breathing they will figure out how to be better than another one that's the that and that's the thing about the equalizing, right? Like, are we? Are we not? So, but even so, to to your question, right? What are black people in these rituals? Um, which, when you are in a culture in a community that's so normal for you, you don't even think that this is one. But um, the home going, and it is definitely different from a funeral. Um, I guess that's the one that I'll talk about, um, perhaps the repast, but great documentary. Literally, if you just search up Home Going, excellent documentary. I recommend everybody get it and watch it um, about a very old funeral home in Harlem. Um, Isaiah is is either the first or the last name of the um, funeral home owner. Um, and it just does a wonderful job of following him um, and contextualizing what's going on. Um, but the home going really is the, the elements of it. And even going back to Carla Holloway's book passed on that I recommend for everybody to, to grab and read um, is about okay, is about um kind of breaking down what's happening at this ritual and time is a big thing um first of all if someone dies even on a monday 
you're not going to have that funeral the weekend. Usually funerals are on a weekend. You're not even going to have it that weekend. You're going to have it the next weekend to make sure all the family gets in. As many people as can come, they're going to come. In the early 20th century, you know, black folks saved for this, which is why Booker T. Washington was like, you know, black people aren't preparing to live, they're preparing to die. Because any pendings, whatever they had, and in death, you have these elaborate funerals, right? Um, And so to give that context is that whites were saying, you know, we're being um, taken advantage of by the funeral director because it was unregulated to 75. Um, This funeral director's charging $1,000. The next funeral director's charging $700. Somebody may charge $200, all for the same services. The uh, digging the grave, uh, putting the body in, um, the horse and carriage to get the body to the cemetery, lay the person out, um, you know, in the parlor. Um, And with black folks, it wasn't an ostentatious funeral. You know, this is about um, going home properly in death and again, demonstrating I'm not a thug in quotes. I'm not a mammy. I'm not just this worker of white folks. I was a community organizer. Um, You know, I was part of the the block captain to keep the block clean. I was definitely somebody's mother, aunt, what have you. So the time, and then goes into how elaborate it was, but the time of it, the time of the funeral, how long it takes to have it, and then the time of the funeral. You're not going there to be out in an hour. It's just not going to happen. Anybody that knew this person wants to get up and speak about this person. Even though there's a program... I knew him. I knew her. I need. I want to say my my two cents about it. Um, and th- there is pushback. So I'm not saying that everybody is just you know okay with this. But generally, you know, this is this is what happens. Um, and then, like I said, the ostentatious funeral is not something that you will see described with black folks. It's oh, they they put him home. They they sent him out right. That's the word. Oh, man. Yeah. Did you see how many sheriff's cars showed up? Did you see how many flowers? Did you see they had a vault over the casket? Did you see the color of that casket? Did you see the lining? Oh, did you see that suit he had on? You know, this is what they put. They put him out right. They sent him home right. So it's not that. Um, and historically, the funeral black funeral directors weren't, you know, getting over in quotes on people. If you didn't have the money, you could give a chicken, you know, or exchange because they were living in the community. You know, it wasn't one of those businesses where I live outside of the community and I'm t- and my business is in the community. My business, my house, I'm in and of this community. Um, so I think all those dynamics in the home going, the time, the length, how elaborate um, is something that's different. Um, and preparing the body is another one. Black people expect that when someone dies, they look like themselves. So embalming, which is a hot button with the, you know, the home funeral movement um, that's going on now, this idea of natural burial. You know, a green burial. Somebody dies, put them back in the ground. Um, that's kind of, you know, um, it, not in opposition, but it's just not even contentious, but it's just in it's difference. There's a, there's a difference in the black. We need the body preserved because I want my brother to look like he looked. That's important for me. I want my mom. I want my sister. I want my nephew to look how he looked. And when you go back in the ways that black bodies have been mangled. 
lynching. They're, and, and with lynching, it was a ritual, cutting off limbs, cutting off ears, white Genitalia, people sending it everything, out. yeah, right. I want to put that person back together again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, and, and it's these, you know, it's those types of things that, that is all part of this collective healing that we want with the home going. Um, and, I, and that's, you know, I, I don't even see it as a ritual, but it is, you know, that's something because it has these elements of what, who's supposed to do what. And, 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 you know, these things that I've just described the time, but yeah, the home going is a ritual. How does a marginalized person of color within the community uh, get treated in death? Say a transgender mm. person of color, does it then does the switch get flipped and within the you community? know what I will say this, Susan. Um, so we oh, and you just reminded me, and let me apologize. Queer Death Studies Network is another one of our partners, and they are awesome. Um, they just had a wonderful international conference, um, and I hope to interview them about it on our blog. Um, and they also just published, like as, as a group, um, Marietta, Nina, Tara, um, and maybe some others as a group just published a special edition journal, literally centering the queer community in death, dying, and mourning. Um, and so that's so important. I will say that I have not been to a funeral where I know this person was queer um, or trans. Um, but homophobia runs rampant in our community, literally in America, in everyone's community. Um, and it's so important to humanize this person and let them go out, you know, the way that they live. And you've got me thinking now, do you watch this show on FX called Pose? I've, I've seen a couple uh, clips of it. It's, it looks, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. My best that friend show, Ellen loves that show. Oh, she has a right to love it. Yeah. Because I love it. She says it's, it's, it's awesome. She says it's exceptional and I've seen clips of it. And uh, so, yeah. And, and, but they do this. They, they go there with the funeral um, because AIDS, um, it, it's, not, it's about, it centers in New York, black and brown community. Um, it centers on them. They're telling the story. Um, and one of their own dies. Um, and she's been disowned by her parents. Um, and so it's her community that funeralizes her, right? Um, but that's not always the case. You know, um, and that's something that I think the home funeral movement um, and natural burial movement is right about. Because when you're dealing with, um, and I may even get some blowback from saying this, but when you're dealing with uh, the funeral home and funeral directors, it is, they, they follow a protocol of next of kin and they follow the protocol of who's paying the bill. Like I said, may get blowback, but it, that is what it is. So because of this ridiculous heteronormativity that we have and, you know, rolling back all the rights that anybody should have, you know, gay marriage. If I have lived with this person for 20 years and their parents disown them when they die, the parents want to swoop in. And especially in the trans community and say, no, this is my son when this person has lived their whole life as a woman, then that's why I'm saying I think natural burial has a point. 
because you take out the funeral director and that kind of hierarchy of who's paying and the next of kin, you know, type thing um, to, to release the body from the hospital. Like these are formal things that happen with death that I don't even think people realize that aren't always backed up by the law. Right. Who can care? Who can act? Who can actually have a body um, and take the body and dispose of the body? And I'm not being um, heartless when I say dispose. I don't want to say bury because people cremate. Some people feel like only a hospital, only a funeral home can do that. And I remember learning about um, and I'm happy to answer questions or if this sparks discussion, but that's not always it. The family can have the body and then that's uh, with the home, with the natural movement. But um, but yeah, but those are the questions surrounding it, whether it's the black community or whatever community, you know, really trying to funeralize and, um, you know, give a proper burial um, to these folks. But those are the issues, though. Those are the issues around the trans community. Are we going to let this person be funeralized and proper burial like they lived? You know, the ceremonies are different. Does it have to be in a church if this person didn't go to church? If the, if the church shunned this trans person, right? Maybe it needs to be in a place where they frequent it. Um, and the, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term celebrants, celebrants is what they're called in the UK. And I just learned about these folks. Um, and, this, and they work with the funeral home to have this quote unquote, what we would call an alternative funeral, where exactly what I'm saying, let's say that this trans person, because of the resistance with the church, and that's generally where a funeral is held, because of the isolation from the family, then the, the celebrant would come in and, and with their loved ones, with whatever the, the people that are with them, um, when they die, create the most wonderful meaning celebration for that person. And it's based on um, what that person would have wanted. You know, it's not just we're going to kind of cookie cutter it with the church and the family type thing. I hope I'm making my point. Absolutely. Clear. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, I'm, I'm, I get you. Following <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. again, if anyone listening doesn't, at the end, we'll, I'll get all your information so that they sure. can reach out to you. Um, when okay. I was reading, you sent me your, your bio, uh, which was great, and I was able to uh, read up a little bit. I don't like to, to get too far in because I want this conversation to be organic, as it has been. But I did notice something particular that you had uh, that stood out, and it was black female death work and i was curious why that's set apart yeah yeah because um death work and what i'm talking about and now oh god and now uh, but my research specifically is late 1900s early 20th century uh death work is patriarchal Highly patriarchal. Um, and again, you know, this is where death was in the home. Who was in the home? Women were in the home. So women were the one that controlled death work. They were the ones that were mourning. They were the ones that was cleaning the bodies, whether it was male or female. But there's some discrepancy there where um, in some communities you had males cleaning male bodies. But as a whole, women controlled death calling, letting people know so-and-so has died, sending the children out, covering the clocks, you know, in the black community, sitting up mourning. Women controlled it. 
So it wasn't until um, death was made into a trade. So death is not about necessarily preparing the body, but it's about who's digging the grave, who has the money to have the hearse. Um, and so all these ridiculous notions about, oh, well, women can't lift a body to put it in a coffin anymore. Well, who's putting the body out in the parlor to, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, so men in, in a very sense and with embalming too, because embalming was science, uh, which it came from chemistry, it came from Europe. People are trying to figure out how can we preserve this body from a very scientific, like this is the origins of it, a very scientific way. We want to study the body. You know, they don't have plastic skeletons and plastic body parts like we have now. So we're going to, how long can we preserve this body to uh, study it? Um, and so it just developed into embalming, right? Um, because we're trying to preserve the body. And it really was popularized with Lincoln when he, you know, was assassinated, his body going all around the country. Um, and so men were at the, the head of that. They just was at the head of it, similar with childbirth. Women were delivering babies. Women have babies. All of a sudden it became a study, a science, medicine, gynecology. Now men are doing it with forceps, right? Um, so in that regard, women were definitely pushed out. Um, but for me, when I started studying undertakers in the early, like I said, the late 1900s and early 20th century, um, I saw these men because many businesses were named, it was a name, whether it was a carpentry business, a door making, light making, it was somebody's name. So it was like, oh, you know, Robert Elliott undertaking. And all of a sudden, early 1900s, 1910s, these women just popped out of my work. Like, where did these 20 women come from? And they were mother and daughter teams um, or funeral directresses. Love that. So what, you know, what, what, what's going on here in 1916 that like all these women, particularly in Baltimore. Um, and so, you know, I learned that research that I just kind of laid out to you um, and that men were dying. They died. The, the patriarch died. Um, the brother died or this woman married into the family. Um, and, but they were they were taking over and growing these organizations. And so um, society wasn't really seeing them in the same way that they don't see women. You know, Einstein's wife was a wife. You know, all these men out here publishing all of these books and they got three kids. How are you doing that? Don't, 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 don't do that. Um, and so they, they are absolutely undertakers. So it's, it's important um, to distinguish that these were black women, you know, because of the racism and, um, you know, making sure, and, and, and there were differences too. Um, there, there was differences in, um, I guess we could say, white women's um, death work, definitely in the literature, just highlighting that black women are here too. And they're also doing this work for their community, um, you know, in, in maybe some similar ways that like, um, there's a wonderful scholar that has written on white women, but I don't think she racializes it, but it's white women um, in the 19th century and how they're using their deathbed as a pulpit 
And it's just fascinating research where this woman, because she's on her deathbed, she's allowed to have a voice. And it's multiple women and how um, these priests are writing about them and, and putting them in the center and they're, they're um, you know, it's a pulpit. So in those kind of creative ways or spiritualism, right, the, mm. the rappings and the tappings, you know, the white women are allowed to convene with the dead and have this voice, right? You know, I'm saying, hey, here are black women. Um, they're not necessarily doing that, even though we could argue that Harry Tubman was a spiritualist. But there's dozens of black women that are undertakers and doing this work and, and passing it on to their, you know, their daughters. Um, so, yeah. That's- yeah. And spiritualism, the movement of that in the 19th century, I think that it's uh, it's definitely female centric. I mean, right. there are so many wonderful books about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll have to oh, get yeah. a book list from you, some recommended, besides the ones that you already mentioned. But that's a, books are a good segue. So you wrote a book, Real Business, Maryland's First Black Cemetery Journeys into the Enterprise of Death, and then co-editor of uh, the one that's coming up, right? Till Death Do Us Part, American Ethnic Cemeteries as, board, as Borders Uncrossed. I didn't almost yeah. got that wrong. All right. So let's talk about what's coming. The yeah. April 2020 book. Talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Till Death Do Us Part, American Ethnic Cemeteries as Borders Uncrossed. Uh, we're trying to be savvy there with our title. Um, just kind of goes back to what we were saying. Like, is death really equal? Right. And, um, you know, we see ourselves as having like this really simple question. Why are we? Why are we okay with death still being segregated and or separated. If I tell somebody, um, or they may even assume that I'm going to a black funeral home, you know, it's like, okay, that's okay. And even in, even in 2019, like that's okay, you know, to still go to this kind of separated, segregated place. And so the book, it's a collection of essays. We talk about uh, Polish Americans, Polish and Polish Americans. We talk about Jewish peoples, um, African American peoples. We talk about um, New Mexico, New Spain, and all of this is 19th century. We talk about Muslim, um, and we talk about white Americans. Um, and I'm trying to make sure I didn't um, miss anyone. Um, white Americans, I think they're. What is, yeah, 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 okay. Um, and we talk about the South in an interesting way. Um, and we look specifically at the 19th century because that's when a lot of immigrants are here. That's what America is like, who, what is, are we Americans? The melting pot, all of that's happening. And so we center on death as a way that, um, like the Polish, for example, are using death to assimilate, to acculturate, to push back against that idea. Um, and so it's really this idea of looking at death and who, how are we creating an American identity? That's honestly what this book, and we're looking at each chapter, we're looking at that. Um, and, I, and I feel like it's a very creative way for folks to look at social history. People don't look at death as a way of knowing, mm-hmm. as a way of um, you know understanding. And we are, we're saying it's a way of understanding borders, um, borders that are artificial, borders that are real, um, especially in a time like now, you know, we're hyper focused on our nation's southern border. 
um, and, you know, putting up borders between races or focus on it even more and borders with class. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at death to try to say people have kicked those borders down. Some people have erected them on their own, their own right. You think you put this border up. No, really, I put this border up to keep you out. Honestly, my, my chapter is looking at a lot of, of that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping folks come away with it going, well, that's an interesting way to understand who America is right now. Mm, mm-hmm. I, again, as I said at the beginning, death to me is one of the most fascinating subjects. Mm-hmm. How we deal with death, how we yeah. perceive our own death, how we perceive others' death, how death has been used as a, a tool for so long by so many cultures. And it's not like that stopped, obviously, as we've talked about, but just go around the world and, you know, death is quite the commodity. So, you know, and and uh, I just find it fascinating. I am also very curious about something you said in the beginning, and I don't want to take all of your time, but of course I could talk about the subject forever, but um, (laughs) (laughs) when we first started talking, you said, said something about the dead coming to you in, yeah. in the culture in the black culture and I know it's very strong in um, the, in Colombia and Mexico the idea of the dead with warnings or tidings and things can, I'd love to talk about that for a minute yeah so I think to bring some context to um, you know what we're talking about is in the African diaspora millions of Africans were forcibly um, left Africa and they went um, to the Americas, North America, Central America, South America. Many went to Brazil. Slavery was not ended in Brazil till the you know 1888. So these ideas were with them. These ideas were with them about debt. Um, so when people, you know, talk about Santeria or if they talk about, you know, it's African cultural norms that have also adopted, you know, with what's going on with the native people that were there as well, you know. Um, but this idea of the dead um, and the person didn't necessarily come, well, didn't not, period, come to me. Um, but this was a story that was passed on by my mom. So on my mom's side, um, my so my maternal grandfather, his brother Van, um, and forgive me, mom, if I got the story wrong, but I really think it was my my uncle, well, my great uncle Van um, came back, and it's like my granddaddy set up in the bed, or you know, he was sitting there, and uh, Uncle Van didn't say anything to him, and he just walked through the door. He walked through this closet door. Um, which is for my grandfather to follow him. And he did, and he found $20 in his coat jacket. So it's those kind of stories that, um, you know, have always been running around my family, and they're believed. And that, that's the thing, like, it's it's believed. You know, it's not that it's like, oh, so-and-so's crazy, you know, they've been in that juice too much. You know, it's just that they're, they're believed in, in you, even now, and, and I know this is like a, an American thing because I've heard more than, you know, black people or even of color people say that someone dies. Oh, I have another angel now. I have somebody watching over me now. So, you know, um, but people coming back, um, you know, my mom was born in 42. So she would tell me stories of this, um, that this did not happen to me, but they're believed. 
But I guess that's the point that I just want to make. Or, or tell me, what were you thinking about it? I mean, I think that that is that is an important point that they are believed that it is not that the tether is is yeah. by no means snipped <laughs> when someone yeah. takes their last breath. <clears throat> Yeah, and you know, and it, I mean, there's there's just story after story, you know, with and again, and I don't know because I haven't like scholarly researched that type of in in that line, this idea of the tether or this idea of that type of communication. Like, so I haven't necessarily even researched and saw what people have, but it's so common to hear in the black community when my um, nephew, you know, was just tragically murdered, um, my sister would see him. And, you know, her interpretation was always, you know, really want to make sure I'm okay. You know, I can smell his cologne. And it could be interpreted that, you know, he lived in that room. He sprayed cologne all the time. So, of course, it's still there. You know what I mean? And yeah. I don't want to, you know. For me, I do believe that the dead communicate with us. Because I don't think, I think they're, they're the corpus. I think that the mortal coil mm-hmm. has been shuffled off. Yes, but but I, I don't think that the being is gone by any means. Yeah. And, in and, some, and that was her thing. Yeah. In some and ways, they're more powerful. Their their ability to communicate with us becomes mm. bigger, whether it's because it is um, kinetic within us or that they somehow can manipulate wherever they are. I don't know. For me, I believe that because I myself have had so many experiences that to deny it at this pl- at this point in my life would be insane. Yeah. And I, I like that because I know that we give credence and a lot of power to the dead. You know, so if this person has decided to show him or herself to me, there's meaning. I'm going to figure this out. You know, I'm going to keep, you know, you know, interacting with this. Um, but I think in today's society, and I don't know if science is it or what's the... I don't know. I don't know what's kind of countering it or why they can't both stand on their own right. equally. Right, right. You know, but you just, you can't tell people this stuff. Yeah, and when my ancestors pass away, I am a part of them. Their DNA is my DNA. When I love someone in life, that creates a bond that is, it's impossible to break that. And when, so when that person dies, um, we have become each other. And, and you know what I'm saying? It's it's yeah, it's yeah. deeper. The connection is deeper. And I truly believe that we are all the same person. You know, we are all connected. And yeah. so when you pass or I pass, that because of that connection, if I needed yeah. to get some sort of a message to you or vice versa, that line is there because we are. I mean, the family tree began. Yeah. at some point in the roots in the soil or whatever and grew out and we might all be on all these different branches in the modern world but our lineage our dna the very pulse of who we are began in the same place we're in yeah, but, but, we're but you know what though that comes from an understanding <coughs> that life and death is cyclical and i think that's what you're saying that's even what um 
you know, a lot of the the pushback, you know, with the natural burial and, and stuff, I think they're, they're trying to push back against that rightly so, that life and death is connected. You keep existing. Um, but if you don't have that, like if you honestly don't believe that, you know what I mean? You you believe that life is life and death is death. And so there's no between. Yeah. And I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm all about people believing whatever it is they need or mm. want or have or whatever. That's fine, especially in terms of life and death. I mean, those are big concepts. Yeah. These are not easy concepts. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all just trying to work it out. But for me, yeah. I do believe that the, the veil is, is very thin and that the connection is there, period. Yeah. Yeah. How have you prepared for your own death? Do you think about that at all? Mm-hmm. Is it Has all your work eased you or made you more uh, freaked out? <laughs> you know... I never see myself like studying death like that, <laughs> which is weird, right? Because every historian studies dead people. Nobody's alive that we're studying, you know? So, um, but I don't like researching grieving and bereavement. And the fact that I'm actually researching and writing on the RIP t shirts. It was for my own coping. Seriously. Um, And what's serendipitous about the whole thing of the research, Jesus Christ, I'm my nephew, is that I saw this call for this, um, what's called a reflexive study for this uh, book that you put yourself in as the mourner and you also... um, you know, look at it from this kind of scholarly, you know, research perspective. And I and I, I thought, man, that's cool. I'm going to pick that book up when that gets printed. Like, that's cool. And, like, they extended the deadline, and then my nephew passes. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got to write this thing. Because I am inside this ritual. And I'm also thinking about it as a scholar um, to help me cope, honestly, to help me cope with that. Um had I thought about my own death and, and what I want, I remember hearing about um, green burial as in these um, disposable urns that are that are made, right? These reusable, well, not reusable, but these biodegradable, that's the word, biodegradable urns. I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's dope. Um, you know, I'll just become a tree. But then I was like, oh, I don't want to be cremated. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Um, and then I don't want to have like, where's my tree gonna go like so I'm gonna make my kids because <laughs> I have three kids like have to look at outside at me I don't know how they're gonna take um you know my death and all that um so I just think like maybe I'll just I do still want to be a tree somewhere anywhere I don't care I, I think that's dope I, I want to be a tree I don't want to be cremated uh, but just kind of you know put me in a shroud put me in the ground somewhere that you think is, is nice. Um, but I think more for me is about, um, my funeral or, you know, whatever you call it, um, more than what they do with my body. Um, because I know that there's going to be people that want to say stuff about me. Um, but I, I have told my spouse, I've told my life mate, this and I don't know if I've necessarily told my kids um, but it's not a death denying thing it's just maybe it just hasn't come up but it's to them they get to decide because they're the ones left here dealing with it 
Mm. So I'm not going to force a tree on them. I'm not going to force, you know, this kind of stuff on them. Um, you've got the life insurance money. Go open up a business. <laughs> go buy that car. You know what I mean? Like live your life. Um, because I, I enjoyed you all and I loved you fiercely when I was alive. Um, one thing I will tell you with my brother passing a month and how many days, 14 days ago, my nephew, um, passing away two years ago. I think that, um, death people have regret and guilt and I've decided to live my life even before their passing. Oh, it's about the life. I'm living it. I'm living it. I'm living it. Um, but I think my research, though, is really about calling attention to what's going on with black folks. Um, you know, that, that activist arm of it, though. But yeah, I'm living life. And when death comes, it comes. But I'm, I'm living it. Do you believe in an afterlife? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all that heaven and hell, not sure. Um, but if this is it, Susan, Jesus Christ. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> this can't be it. This can't be it. Uh, yeah, this this can't be it. Unless, but I do. unless we're already dead and this is purgatory, and then you know we're doing our time in purgatory, and then we we get to kick it no, up. No, I'm 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 rebuking that. <laughs> Cut, edit, no, it, it, it can't be. Doctor Fletcher, cool tell here. tell people how they can find you. So if they want to reach out to you, if they want to ask questions, and obviously your book comes out in April 2020, and I'll put um, information about that on HeyHumanPodcast.com's link page as well. But just so that people can hear how to directly find you. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'm very active on Twitter. So um, guys, hit me up at Cami Fletcher. K-A-M-I Fletcher F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R 36 at Twitter um, I have a website CamiFletcher.Weebly.com um, mm-hmm. and yeah Great. pretty much it Thank you so much Dr. Fletcher I, I could talk with you for hours I am sure of that and maybe I'll get a chance uh, if, if I'm ever in your neighborhood, let's go, you know, sit in and have some conversation for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love that. Thank you. It's been my honor. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.